hallowed be thy name. That means his name is considered as holy. Thy kingdom come. That's the administration we believe in. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. So when we pray, it's not my will be done or your will be done. I think it was Tozer that used to say the hardest work of prayer is getting yourself to a mental point where you prefer the will of God. Not your will, but his will. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we ask these questions about the last days. Yeah, we're moving to the last days. And all of this that's going on, all of it, all of it that alarms us and concerns us is part of his will. Is it not? When God revealed a lot of this to Daniel, Daniel kept having visions. And you know what kept happening to Daniel as God revealed to him what was going to happen in the last days? Daniel would get sick. Daniel would get ill. Daniel would get exhausted. He, 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 he couldn't eat. He couldn't sleep. Because it, it so disrupted his equilibrium. Same thing happened to the prophet Habakkuk. And God showed him what he was going to do, and it made him sick. Basically, he said, God, do, do, Lord, don't do that. But see, God does it his way, not our way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day... Six months of salary in the bank. <laughs> Every financial advisor I talk to, that's what I hear. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, do you? I mean, that's a good thing. Um, if you can get it, and if you have it, or give us this day financial independence. Uh, you, you know what we like, guys? We like it so that we're set for the rest of our lives so that we never have to worry about money again. But sometimes God wants us to worry about money in the sense that he wants us depending on him. So give us this day our daily bread. And now you pray that with a little more meaning, especially if you've, last, if you've lost half of your retirement. Well, you still have half left. Any of you guys ever put money away in an emergency fund? Man, I, I, I do that. And you know what really ticks me off? Is when I got to go get that money for an emergency. <laughs> Have you ever had to go get money out of that emergency fund for an emergency? And how do you feel about that? You're thinking, oh, great, I got this money in here that I set aside for an emergency. That's not how I look at it. I'm kind of ticked off. Because I want that emergency money to stay there, which means I never have emergencies. But see, when I have emergencies, you know what happens to me? I say, our Father who art in heaven. This stuff drives us to him. 
Our Father who art in heaven. If you don't know the Lord's Prayer, you're going to get it by the time we're done with this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. There are people who prayed that today out of desperation because they really needed God to do that. You're probably not one of them. So you're okay. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive those people. Forgive them. Get over it. God's in control of your life. Don't get bitter over what they've done. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Forever. That's the thing about God, you see. His plan that he's working, it's forever. It's forever. It's forever. And the thing I have to keep reminding myself is that where I am today and where the world is today is exactly on schedule according to his plan. That's how you have to look at this stuff, guys. It's all on schedule according to his plan. And when you get that perspective, the anxiety begins to diminish. Does it not? And you can enjoy something called mental health. Which just looking around, some of you guys desperately need. And I'm one of them. Best place to find mental health is on your knees. So why don't we bow before him? So we thank you, our Father, that you are indeed our Father. And you know that we need all these things. You know that we need jobs. You know that we need health in order to function at a job. You know that we need wisdom to be the men that we need to be in our homes. We need to be men who are committed to our wives. And that's not always easy. Because sometimes our wives are not where we would like them to be. Quite frankly. They're not perfect women. Our wives go through things just as we go through things. Some of our wives have been deeply hurt. And they're still working all of that through. 
And a lot of times we're the recipients of the anger. And we wonder if this will ever get resolved. And the world says, just leave. You don't need to put up with that. But that's not what you say. So we bring that to you. Some of us have uh, kids that are walking down a a wrong path, or grandkids that are walking down a wrong path, a wrong road with wrong friends, making absolutely every wrong choice they could possibly make, and it grieves us to see where they are, and we would like to get through to them, but they're not listening. So we pray that you would do something, Lord, in their lives to get their attention. You may even have to be severe. But we would ask you, Lord, and we can trust you in this because of your character, that even as you may be severe, you will do it with great mercy. For you are not trying to ruin their lives, you're trying to save their lives. There are just a ton of needs in here. And we all look pretty good, we all look pretty stable, we all look pretty together. But we've all got anxiety and we've got some fears and we've got some worries. We've got some deep concerns. I pray for the guys who are here tonight who think they don't need you. I pray that you will work in their lives to demonstrate to them how desperately they do need you. For they are in very dangerous territory. Let them see and let them feel their utter incompetency to handle life so that they might call out to you. We don't always understand. In fact, we rarely understand how it is that you work in our lives. And even tonight, Lord, may you give us a glimpse of how you work so strangely and why you work this way and what you're up to. And help us to not be discouraged and help us not to lose heart and help us not to think that it'll always be the way that it is right now. Give us hope. Give us hope. Because after you have done the work that you're doing in our lives through a particular episode of life, you remove the difficulty and the affliction and you bring favor and you bring blessing and now we can handle it. Help us to learn to become patient. And for for a lot of us in here, that would be as big a miracle as you're healing the blind man. Because patience is so foreign to us and to our nature and to our temperament. Help us to learn to wait upon you. And not to go running ahead of you, trying to work things out without your consent or your wisdom. I pray for the guys who are leading double lives. That have got some secret sin going on underneath that nobody in their family knows about. And they're trying to cover it, they're trying to hide it. I pray for them, Lord, that you would bring them to a place of tremendous pressure so that they would come clean and confess this before you and confess it, if need be, to someone else so that their lives could be saved. 
A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And some of us are there now, and some of us have been there. We ask that you would save us from that wrong mindset and help us to follow you with our whole hearts and our whole minds so that we could be men who have an influence in the sphere in which you have placed us. We ask now that you will make this time that we have here profitable. None of us can do that. Only your spirit can do that. So we ask him to come and minister to each guy in the depths of his being. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. That was a long prayer. You know why I know it's a long prayer? Because I had trouble getting up. Right here, I had trouble getting up. That's how I know it was a long prayer. 2 Timothy chapter 1. It's Paul's last letter. He's about to, to die. Some would say that's a real crisis. Um, I don't think it was a crisis for Paul. He'd had too many crises in his life. G. Campbell Morgan, the great uh, Bible teacher and pastor who died somewhere around 1940, G. Campbell Morgan made this statement. He, says, he, he said, inevitably there comes a crisis sooner or later in which we are brought to the appalling sense of our own weakness. And that is a great hour. We are men... And we don't like to be weak. We like to be strong. If there's anything we hate, it's being weak. Uh, as men, we hate being sick. We hate it. Who wants to be sick? Nobody wants to be sick. Nobody wants to be ill. Nobody wants to deal with chronic pain. But some of us in this room do. My, my brother Jeff deals with chronic pain. Some of you guys do. Uh, we want to be strong and capable in our careers. We want everything to go the way that we plan it. When we're young and we play sports, we want everything to go the way that we envision it. We're the ones that make that last second shot. And sometimes we're the one who takes the shot and we don't make it. And then you've got to live with that for a while. Uh, there are crises in life. That make us, and, and they come in different chapters of life, but these crises, what happens when we're in a crisis, we come to the end of ourselves, and we, we realize, you know what, I really don't have what it takes. And that can be one of the greatest things that can happen to a man. Uh, when you hit a crisis, you're suffering. And sometimes suffering will save your life. I think of Charles Colson. Colson was uh, a very successful young man, I think. Colson, if I'm not mistaken, was the youngest company command, uh, commander in the history of the United States Marine Corps. He got out of the military, did very well in uh, law school, started climbing the ladder. And before you know it, at a very young age, he is chief counsel to the president of the United States. And he has uh, got a very, very nice office in the White House, just down from the Oval Office. He, he, was, uh, he was hitting on all cylinders. All he had ever known was success. He had really never known failure. 
he, he would do whatever it took. He was going to do whatever he had to do to be successful. But then one night he found himself late in his car sobbing before God. A friend had just shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. And for the first time in his life, he was open to it. Because he was in a crisis, and he was suffering, and his world had fallen apart. And yes, he wound up going to prison. And he thought his life was over. Little did he know that his life was just beginning. And for the last 35 Maybe close to 40 years now. Charles Colson has been ministering in prisons all over the world because, you see, he went to prison. It was a great crisis. It was a great failure. I think Jesus said something along the lines that you're not going to find your life until you lose it. That's a crisis, and that's suffering. So in 2 Timothy chapter 1, you're going to notice that Paul... As he's handing off the baton to young Timothy, and and as he's facing a crisis, but you don't get the sense, in reading 2 Timothy, even though he's facing imminent death, you don't get the sense of a guy who's worried or anxious or really, uh, uh, he's not frightened, he's not not on uh, meds to calm him down, Uh, he doesn't have an IV drip just to keep him stable, Uh, he is stable. Because he knows who he is, and he knows who he serves, and he knows where he's going. He says in verse 8 of 2 Timothy 1, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me, his prisoner. Now note this phrase. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. When we start out in life, we start making plans, and as we get older and figure out who we are, we start thinking, well, I'd like to do this, or I'd like to do this, and we start making a plan, or I want, you know, I got this. Let me tell you something. That's well and good, and that's part of being a young man, and you should have those hopes and dreams, but God has a plan. God has something in mind. And those of us who are past 40, those of us who are past 50, those of us who were past 60. Uh, those of us who are breathing, let's just put it that way. <laughs> if you've lived long enough, you can look back and see what your plan was, and then you look at where you are now, and you see what God's plan was. And you're kind of surprised where you are in comparison to where you thought you would be. That's because Christ has called us according to his own purpose. Verse 10. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death. We talked about this last week. And brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Verse 11. Now here's God's plan that Paul never planned on happening. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What I want to camp on tonight is the suffering. He says to Timothy in verse 8, join with me in suffering 
And then he says in verse 12, for this reason, I also suffer these things. Why is he suffering? Well, number one, he's in prison. He's in the dungeon in Rome. He's about to lose his life. Why is he going to lose his life? Well, because uh, he was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. See, when he was appointed, oh, we thought, oh, that's great, man. You're going to preach. You have big crowds and, you know, big ministry. And, oh, that's great. Apostle. Man, they're only, you had to be handpicked by Christ to be an apostle. Boy, what an honor to be an apostle. Well, that also meant that you're going to die uh, a martyr's death. The only one who didn't was John on the Isle of Patmos. The rest of them died violent deaths for the sake of the gospel. Um, he was a teacher. See, Paul used to teach the Jewish law, but something happened to him that was so profound, he would go into the Jewish synagogue and, te- and teach not what he used to teach, but teach that Christ was the Messiah and Christianity was true. Radical change, in it, and because of that, there was a violent opposition. So when you read the letters of Paul and you read through his life, you're always noticing that Paul's always in jail. Paul's always suffering. Well, why is that? It's because Christ reached down and brought about his purpose and his plan in Paul's life. You say, wait a minute, I thought Christianity was a wonderful thing. It is. Christianity is a wonderful thing. But Christianity means you're going to suffer. Fine little booklet by John J. Murray called Behind a Frowning Providence. Just a little booklet on suffering. It's, uh, it's profound. How do you write a book like this on suffering? By having a 13-year-old daughter get sick and die. And your whole world falls apart. Suddenly passages that didn't mean a whole lot to you suddenly mean the world to you when you suffer. And then in turn, you begin to minister to other people out of the comfort which you have received in your suffering. That was God's purpose and plan for John J. Murray. Uh, If you've been in this Bible study over the last several years, on more than one occasion, you've heard me refer to Thomas Watson's little booklet, All Things for Good, which was written 300 years ago. Uh, It was actually written... I want to say in 1683, and let's see if I'm right. I'm not. 1663. It was was written in 1663 because in 1662, by the way, this this book was really not written for everyone initially, but it was written for 2,000 pastors in England who had all in 1662, because of something that was written in the law called the Act of Uniformity, all of the conservative, Bible-believing pastors were thrown out of their churches. And it was against the law for them to preach again. And this is how they made their living. And it was a time of intense persecution. One of the pastors who was put out was Thomas Watson. So he wrote this booklet to his fellow pastors. And the title is what? All Things for Good. Losing your church, losing your ability to preach, Intense persecution, all things for good. And the first chapter of this little booklet, uh, 
The title of the first chapter is, and you know, it's based on Romans 8.28, and we know that God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So the first chapter is simply called, The Best Things Work for Good to the Godly. That's chapter one. The best things work for good to the godly. Uh, Chapter two is, The Worst Things Work for Good to the Godly. And if you compare the two chapters, you'll see that the second chapter about the worst things is twice as long as the first chapter. Because he goes into a lot more detail about how God uses suffering and affliction and the disappointments of life to bring good into our lives. When we're experiencing those things, it's the absolute worst thing. We we can't imagine how God could bring good. But yet God brings good even out of the worst things that happen. God brings good out of sufferings. So I get in the mail uh, Forbes because I subscribe to Forbes. April 13th edition. And uh, the cover is called What Recession? Some entrepreneurs have hungry customers waiting in line for years. And they do these like one-page bios on these different guys that are doing really well even in these times. And so I'm reading through them. And uh, what what I begin to see is one of the reasons these guys are doing so well, there's a common thread that runs through what they're doing. And what it is is suffering. It's suffering. Uh, Here's a guy, Mike Stewart, lives in Mississippi. Has a, um, he he breeds retrievers. And I'll read you a paragraph. Uh, The name of his farm is Wild Rose. Wild Rose deals only in English Labradors in black, yellow, chocolate, and fox red. Uh, Stewart claims his English labs are purer than the United States breeds, uh, the most popular in America since 1992, which have been crossbred repre- repeatedly, thus muddying the gene pool. Originally from Newfoundland, uh, labs fetched, fetched fish slipped from hauling nets without puncturing the skin. Anyway, so if you want one of these guys' puppies, um, there's a backlog for new pups. It's 210 names deep. He's got orders up through 2010. Um, price ranges are from $1,275 up to $1,500. This is just for a puppy. But then Stewart sells what he calls finished dogs. Those that have lived and trained at Wild Rose for two to three years and have hunted 1,000-plus fallen birds. He has already sold out this year's allotment of 15 finished dogs as in taking orders for Next year, at ten to twelve thousand apiece. Can I tell you something about these finished dogs? They've suffered. They haven't been abused, but they've suffered. So how have they been suffered? Because they've been trained. They've been trained, and when you're trained, you suffer. Any of you guys have fathers growing up who trained you? They just didn't let you coexist. They actually trained you. Mm-hmm. So, from time to time, you would suffer. Would you not? Yeah. Why? Because they loved you, and they were concerned about you and about your future, and they wanted you to, turned out, to be turned out as a finished man. So you suffered. Then uh, I turned the page, and I read about, and I just ripped the page, actually. Those steroids, Rick, you gave me have really been working. I, I want you to know that. Uh, this is called The Real Deal. R-E-E-L. For $2,200, you can own a Bogdan 
What the heck is a Bogdan? A Bogdan is a reel. Not a rodden reel. It's a reel for catching salmon in the Atlantic. The cost for these Bogdans run between $1,300 and $2,200. Uh, the exclusive club who owns Bogdans included Bing Crosby, Benny Goodman, Ted Williams, Prince Philip, the Duke of Wellington, and Paul Volcker. At one time or another, they all cranked in silvery salmon with Bogdan fishing reels, known for their strength and distinctive styles. The Bogdans, and there are just two of them, a father and son, are navigating this recession just as they have every other one over the last seven decades by staying small and doing things their own way. And then they talk about the process as they make these Bogdan reels. Um, uh, between the two of them, they make a hundred a year, basically one a week. And when I'm reading the process, I'm not going to go through this with you, but, but, but you, you know what? There's suffering involved. They're suffering to get that kind of quality. Then I turn the page. You guys are familiar with uh, Stradivarius violins. You ever heard of Sam Zygmuntowicz? Sam Zygmuntowicz. He's right here. 53-year-old violin and cello maker. Lives in Brooklyn. He puts in 15-hour days. He makes six instruments a year. His waiting list stands at 30, a comforting five-year backlog. He charges roughly 53000 for a new violin and 90000 for a new cello. And then you read the process that he goes through. And may I just say this to you? He works, he works 15-hour days. So he starts at 7 in the morning... And he gets done at 10 at night. But the best musicians in the world want one of these. How come his name can't be Smith? <laughs> I've never heard of the guy. But when you read what he does and the process he goes through in order to put out the instruments of this quality, you know what's involved? Suffering. Suffering. Uh, what's interesting... With those of us who have been called by Christ, there's something that God the Father wants to do, and he wants to conform us into the image of Christ. Now, you're talking change here. To conform me into the image of Christ, to conform you into the image of Christ. Do you guys know how many light bulbs? No, that's not right. Do you know how many light bulbs it takes to change a psychiatrist? Let me turn that around. You dyslexic guys got that. Uh, do you know how many psychiatrists it takes to change a light bulb? Just one, but the light bulb must want to change. I thought, I thought it was funny. I mean, you know, each to his own. Uh, light bulbs don't have to want to change, but people do. You just change a light bulb. But in order for me to change, in order for you to change, we have to want to change. And sometimes the way that God changes us, because quite frankly, we get pretty comfortable and we get pretty much into a groove and a rut and we kind of like the way our life is. 
And when you get right down to it, are we really all that interested in maturing in Christ and getting to the next level? No. So what happens? We suffer. We suffer. Something happens that changes our equilibrium. Something interrupts our life and our plans. Something changes our seven-year plan. And what happens is we finally find ourselves in crisis and we find ourselves weak. And what do we do? We call out to God to help us. And suddenly we're open to what he has to say. You see, we can get too comfortable. In here, there's a great quote from C.S. Lewis. I really like this. C.S. Lewis once referred to sufferings as blockades on the road to hell. You think about that. A lot of times, sin starts deep in our hearts And before it's ever acted out, the inclination is there and the tendency is there. And you know what God will use to block us from living that out? Is suffering. Is hardship. Is difficulty. Paul here is emphasizing suffering. He says to Timothy, join with me in suffering. And then he says in verse 12, for this reason I also suffer these things. If you know the story of Paul, here he's at the end of his life. But basically, if you look at his you look at his life story what you see is a story of suffering flip with me in your bible if you would back to uh, the book of acts because we know that paul was the great persecutor of the church he hated christianity he hated the message of christ he assisted in putting stephen to death and then he went on a rampage basically putting christians in prison uh Interrupting homes, taking husbands. We don't know how many were, were, were murdered because of the rages of Saul. But as he, as he was on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, the Lord Jesus appears to him and Christ calls him. And he is... He is <laughs> the Lord didn't preach the gospel to him and didn't say, I'm going to sing just as I am, Paul. And if you're so inclined, I'd like you to come forward. You don't, you don't have any of that in there. Christ basically shows up and says, you're mine from here on out. You belong to me. He was made blind. And he makes his way into the city. And then the Lord in verse, nine, in verse 13 of Acts 9 speaks to this man Ananias. He actually in verse 11 and says, hey, I want you to go make your way to this particular house And there's this man there by the name of Saul. And Ananias said, Lord, I have heard uh, much about this man. Let me just kind of fill you in, Lord, on who this guy is. Um, How much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. But here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. In other words, Lord, are you sure you want me to go see this guy? Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Now watch this. He is a chosen instrument of mine. To bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Verse 16. Watch this. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. You know, if a lot of preachers are writing that today, here's what it would say. For I will show him how large a ministry he will have on an international scale. He will be on 1,200 stations. I will show him the private jet. Not one, but two. I will show him how much hairspray he must put in his hair every day to keep it close. 
I will show him the university that he will name after himself to bring glory to himself. He didn't say it. He, he says, I'm going to show this guy how much he must what? Suffer for my sake. I, I, I want to focus tonight, if you haven't picked up already, I want to focus tonight on suffering. And here's why I want to focus on it. Because number one, we're all suffering. We're just suffering in different ways. But we're all suffering. And, and I want to focus on this uh, to encourage us tonight. Because when you suffer and you continue to suffer and you don't see much relief and you don't see much change, what can happen is you can get heavy hearted and you can get discouraged and you can begin to um, lose your joy and you can begin to lose any hope that you're ever going to enjoy life again. And you can become very morose and very depressed and very discouraged and it, it, it just uh, it dominates your life. Are we suffering? Yeah. Is everybody suffering? Yeah. Are we all suffering at the same level? No. Are we um, uh, suffering differently? Yes. But we're all suffering. Why are we suffering? What is the point to it? What is the reason for it? And we have to ask this question. Why isn't there more teaching in most evangelical churches about suffering? You know the problem with going to a church that really doesn't teach the Bible? There are a lot of churches. You ever want to have a depressing experience? Take some of the biggest churches in the country and look at their websites. I look at church websites all the time because Lou, who does all the interaction with me for churches, and he works everything out when I go to conferences and get invitations to speak. We, when we get a, if we don't know the church, we, we, we check them out. So you go on the website, find out their doctrinal position and all that. And so he'll send me an email, such and such called, here's their website. I go check it out. And it, it, can, be, it can be depressing. Um, I checked out one several weeks ago, and I checked out the page on men's ministry, and, and they must have had, they must have had, 15 to 20, down the side, 15 to 20 different activities you could get involved in with men's ministry. They had the bowling ministry. The bowling ministry. They had the fly fishing. They had the... They had the I mean, I, it sounded to me like 24-hour fitness. Uh, I, I, I thought, what... what I, there was just all this stuff to do. There's just all this action. There's just all this activity. You know, well, you're bored with this. We'll do this. We'll go ice skating. You want to do that? We'll go barrel jumping. You want to go do this? We'll train Labrador Retrievers. You want to do this? Whatever you're interested in, we're going to do it for you. So you'll come to our church. <laughs> I, I tell you something, I got exhausted just reading the page. I mean, I did. It just wore me out. And it was just one page. I mean, all this stuff and all that. You guys ever, you guys ever read the Bible here? You have any small groups that go through by you ever teach guys inductive Bible study methods they can study the Word of God? I mean, I'm just asking. I don't know. Do you? I mean, it's like going to a mall. You know, you get these malls of 24 different movies. Oh gosh, which one? You know, I, I mean, that's, it was just. And, and, and every once in a while, when I go to I get sick. I just kind of feel sick inside. 
because there's so much crap. You know? I didn't have anything in there about a suffering ministry. But you know the problem with that? You got all kinds of men in that church who are suffering. Is anybody teaching these guys? Anybody telling these guys what the Word of God says about suffering? So here's what I want to do tonight. I want to talk about suffering. All right? Um, so I caught Joel Osteen last night on Larry King. <laughs> and I don't want to be, I don't want to come down too hard, but I could only take it like, it was like a love-hate relationship. And I, I'm flipping around, and there he is. And he was answering a question. The question was, it was about gay marriage. And it, you guys remember Arthur Murray? If you want to learn to dance, you go to Arthur Murray. This sucker is Arthur Murrayan. I couldn't take it. I, had to, I just changed it. And I'm watching something else, and then I was tempted again. I'll just take one more snort. So I go back, and oh, I shouldn't. I couldn't take it. I did it three times. That was it. I wanted to say, just give the sucker a straight answer that offends people. Just tell the truth. Just tell it. Lay it out. He's asking about gay marriage. Tell him about gay marriage. Excuse me. Sorry. Just tap. Just say what is it? Say the word of God. Hey, some of you guys here deal with homosexuality. It's all right. It's where you. It's we all. We're all tempted. And, and you're dealing with stuff some of us don't have to deal with. Every guy in here is dealing with sexual immorality. It's either, it's either heterosexual lust or it's homosexual lust. You probably have a different family background than this guy and all that. Okay, and all that stuff comes into it. And you, so we all deal with stuff. Okay? So, it, so is heterosexual adultery sin? Is homosexual sexual behavior sin? Yes, on both counts, there's sin. Yes. Just give a straight answer. People who struggle with homosexuality need to find, they need to find the life that is in Christ. And, and they need to grow in their faith. Doesn't mean that, that temptation goes away and never, never comes back. And you're going to have to deal with that just as an alcoholic's going to deal with that for the rest of his life. But, but the drunkenness is wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. It's, it's, but see, nobody, there's no wrong anymore. There's no wrong. Oh, you're just judging. No, God's judging. The God you don't want to serve, who is an absolute, pure, holy being. He is the one who says, this is how you live. This is right. This is wrong. But we don't want to hear that. So let me say this to you. If you're not a preacher who has the cojones to tell the truth, then get out. Get out. And if you are, get ready for some persecution. Get ready. 
Because it's coming, and it's coming fast. Let me give you one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I think eight. We'll see how it goes. Let me give you eight shots on suffering. Why? Well, you say, well, Steve, you got eight shots out of 2 Timothy? Well, it's out of Paul. He says, join in me with suffering. Now, I want to show you, I want to show you, I want to interweave and show you how this all works. Because, see, a lot of times when we suffer, we think something's wrong. When you're, that doesn't mean something's wrong. It probably means you're right where God wants you to be. You see, because God uses suffering. So I'm just going to give you these. We'll get as far as we can tonight. Number one, here's my first point. Suffering should not surprise a true Christian. Suffering should not surprise a true Christian. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Simply says this. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Why is it that Christians are surprised by suffering? Because they go to churches that have fly fishing ministries and this ministry and this, you know, and change your tire ministries and do this stuff. Nothing wrong with that stuff. Nothing wrong with some of that. As long as it's not central. As long as it comes out of the word of God. If that's a practical manifestation, okay, that's great. But you understand what I'm saying, don't you? Preach the word. Why is it so many Christians are surprised by suffering? When suffering? Because they haven't been taught about suffering. Why haven't they been taught about suffering? Because they're not in a church that teaches the Bible. They go to some church and it's some motivational talk every week. Right? You don't need that. You can't live off that stuff. You can't live off Tony Robbins stuff that's baptized. You need the truth of the word of God. So you ought to take your Bible. You ought to, you ought to read it. Whatever the guy says... Look at it in context and see if it fits. That's how you grow. And if you do that, you're going to find out. You're going to suffer. And when suffering comes, you're not going to be surprised. He says, hey, guys, don't be surprised. It's a fiery deal among you. Don't be surprised. Which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. You're a Christian. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. See, Philippians 1.29, here's one you ought to know. It has been granted to us not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. Along with salvation comes suffering. It's the name of the game in the Christian life. Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation. The Christian life is a very hard life. The Christian life is a very difficult life. In the Christian life, you're always swimming upstream. Always. In the Christian life, you're always going against the grain. In the Christian life, you're always going against the crowd. That's how it works. So you're not going to be well-liked. You're, you're, you're not going to be appreciated. You're, you're, just, you're going to be an irritant. Number two. Suffering should be submitted to the wisdom of God. Let me say that again. Suffering should be submitted to the wisdom of God. Of God. First Peter 5, verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God should entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So where is it that you're suffering? We're going to see in a minute. You're not suffering by accident or by chance or by, you know, drawing some bad cards. That's not where suffering comes from in your life. Are you suffering? You're suffering differently from this guy and this guy suffers differently from this guy and all the way around the room 
Okay? So, but what does it say? Those who suffer should entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Those who suffer according to the will of God. So what do we do? The suffering's going, Lord, I just give you my life. I just entrust you that I, I just give you my life. I don't know how this is going to sort. I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know how this is going to go on. I don't know what the timing is, but I just, I, I, I submit to you. I submit to you and to your wisdom and that you do all things well and you know exactly what is going on in my life. And I believe Romans 8.28. So I'm not going to bolt, I'm not going to run, I'm not going to leave, I'm going to stay the course. You ever get just sick and tired of it? Do you? If you got chronic pain, you ever just get sick? Wouldn't you like to just wake up one? Wouldn't you like to just sleep through the night just once? Wouldn't you? I've had this shoulder going on for a few months. You know, it's done, it's given me an appreciation, it's given me, and, and you know, it's about 95% better and I'm coming out of it and it's, you know, so it's been a few months. And it would be behind me. It's sure giving me an appreciation for people to deal with chronic pain. And I go to bed and I sleep. My brother Jeff goes to bed and he never sleeps. You never sleep. It's chronic pain. And so when you do wake up, you're exhausted because you couldn't sleep and you got the drugs trying to make you sleep and it's just a vicious cycle. It's hell on wheels is what it is. Wouldn't it be nice just to have that over and done with? Yeah, it would be. You live with a contentious wife? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Please. <laughs> or she'll become more contentious. <laughs> but if you do, that's hell. Proverbs talks about it several times. That's tough. That's tough stuff. Those of us that don't have no clue what you deal with. Some of you guys have cancer. And your last report wasn't good. What do you do? Well, you entrust your soul to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That's what you do. You leave it all to him. You leave it all to him. And you trust him. He will do what's right. Number three. The suffering of, of a Christian is planned. 1 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. The suffering of a Christian is planned. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says this. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll pick up in two. He says, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Destined. You ever heard the phrase, God has a wonderful plan for your life? He does. But to give you a little more detail, it includes good things and it includes bad things. That's how God works. Um, you get married, so I have kids. You want those kids to have a good life? Yeah. Are your kids going to suffer? Yeah. You know that? Yeah. You still have kids? Yeah. Every once in a while, I meet a couple, and you know they're, they're childless by choice, and say, "Oh, we're not going to have any kids." Why not? We don't want to bring kids in this kind of world. Well, what other world has there ever been? It's a screwed-up world. Wait a minute. You're telling me you're not going to bring kids in because it's a lousy world? 
God said, be fruitful and multiply. God says, have sex often. That's what it means when it says, be fruitful and multiply. This guy back here just woke up. <laughs> I got it. Don't leave yet. Wait, just stay here and then you go home, okay? The world's always been screwed up. So does that mean we don't have kids? No, we have kids and we raise them in the knowledge and wisdom of the Lord and we discipline them and train them and set them loose. You see? Acts 9.16, it's where the Lord says, and I'm going to show him the things that he must suffer for my sake. God had a plan for him, God called him, and part of the plan was that he was going to suffer. When God called you, part of the plan is that you're going to suffer. Your suffering is planned, it's not random. It didn't happen by the luck of the draw. Because God is sovereign over everything. Excuse me, I can hear that rubbing. Uh, let me give you a shot from Thomas Watson. Uh, this is chapter 3, why all things work for good. He says, God is a skillful physician. He knows what is best. God observes the different temperaments of men and knows what will work most effectually. Some men are of a more sweet disposition and are drawn by mercy. Others are more rugged and knotty pieces. K-N-O-T-T-Y. Others are more rugged and knotty pieces. And God deals with these men in a more forcible way. Some things are kept in sugar. Some are kept in brine. God does not deal alike with all men. He has trials for the strong and cordials or mercies for the weak. God is a faithful physician and therefore will, all will turn to the best. If God does not give you that which you like, God will give you that which you need. A physician does not so much study to please the taste of the patient as to cure his disease. We complain that very hard trials lie upon us. Let us remember God is our physician. Therefore, he labors rather to heal us rather than to humor us. God's dealings with his children, though they are sharp, yet they are safe. And he brings them in order to cure then he quotes Deuteronomy 8.16, that God might do thee good at thy later end. I can go on all night reading this guy. Your sufferings are planned. Let's move to the next one. Number four, God appoints how we will suffer. Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11. Uh, what you have in Revelation 6, you've got the martyrs, those who have died for Christ. In the book of Revelation. And it says in 6 9, when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. These are the martyrs. You ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? Church history. All those people throughout the ages that have died for Christ. Hey, the way things are going, we might have people in America one day dying for Christ. Because we're on the wrong team, everything I'm reading. We're the wrong religion. Everything I'm reading. And these martyrs, verse 10, cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So these martyrs are in heaven and they're saying, Oh, this is going down there on earth. How long before you're going to avenge this, Lord, and, bring, and take care of this stuff? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer, watch this, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. 
That's kind of interesting, isn't it? God says, no, it's not time yet, because I've got others, and I have planned that they will die for me. And until that's all taken care of, you're going to have to wait. Isn't that interesting? God plans how we will suffer. And then you say, oh, wait a minute, gosh, well, well, wait a minute, what if I'm called to be a martyr? Nah, 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 nah. No. I mean, what if you're called to be a martyr? What's your fear? Well, I'm not sure I can handle that. Can you handle it today? Probably not. But you don't need to handle it today. But if you're called to be a martyr, the moment you need to handle it, let me tell you something. His grace is sufficient for you. And he will give you what you need when you need it in order to handle the trial. Jesus said to the disciples, and when they call you up before the, the, the council, don't worry about what you're, you're going to say. It will be given to you in that hour. In that hour. Oh, they call me up. What am I going to say if they ask me this? Don't sweat it. Don't even think about it. You're called up. I'll give it to you the moment you need it. The story is told back in the time of uh, the 1600s in England with all this persecution of believers. And they had a curfew. And it, you could not have church meetings and this young woman was going to a private home for a communion service. And she was making her way down the back streets and the back alleys just trying to get to this little home. And she came around the corner and there was a group of soldiers. And she just panicked. And the captain said, where are you going, young woman? She said, I'm going to have dinner with my older brother. Just like that. And he said, you may pass. Was she going to have dinner with her older brother? Yes, she was. Who is her older brother? Jesus. You know, Jesus is called her older brother in the Word of God. You know what the communion supper is? It's a supper. It's dinner. Did she lie? No. Did she plan on saying that? No. It was given to her in that hour, and she told the exact truth from the Word of God. So don't sweat it. Don't you love this positive thinking stuff? Isn't this great? But, you know, guys, I'd rather deal with reality, wouldn't you? Sure. Uh, let me give you number four. No, I want to give you number four. <laughs> let me give you number five. God appoints when we will suffer. Second Corinthians chapter 12. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it's kind of interesting because Paul is looking back to something. Boasting is necessary, although it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. By the way, we know this is Paul. Verse 5, on behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. As you go through and read this, it's very apparent the man of whom he's speaking is himself. So 14 years before, Paul was caught up into heaven. In the body, out of the body, he's not sure, but he was caught up into heaven. Uh, it's always interesting to me, there are guys on the Christian charismatic circuit that there's usually one or two of them out there at the same time. And their whole ministry is based on the fact they were caught up into heaven. And Jesus showed them all the glories of heaven. And then what they do is they come back and they write a book about everything they saw. 
And they, it's good for about 14, 15 years worth of, uh, you know, speaking gigs. In fact, one guy who was in it for about 20 years kind of ran its course and everybody had heard him and, you know, he'd kind of run the gamut. And then when you know it, all of a sudden, God takes him to hell. Well, there's another book. So he does the hell book. God took me to hell. I'm dead serious. And there's another 14, 15 years of ministry. That's a pretty good gig. You know, he's pretty much over and he retires. You see? The reason I have a problem with that, and I have a problem with that, these guys who have been to heaven and Jesus showed them around and told them, then you're coming back and you're writing a book and telling me all this stuff, is because in verse 4, we know Paul was taken to heaven. I was caught up in a paradise and heard inexpressible words, watch this, which a man is not permitted to speak. So let me get this right here, Bozo. I know Paul went to heaven. But Paul said, I'm not permitted to say these things, but you went and you are? Maybe you could help me with that. Because I don't believe that. I don't buy it. I don't buy it for a minute. If, if, you, if you were to be caught up in the heaven and you came back, how would you feel about yourself? Have any of your friends been to heaven? Any guys in your Bible study group been to heaven? Has your pastor been to heaven? Has your mother-in-law been to heaven? Anybody you know been to heaven? No. How would you feel? You'd feel, would you, wouldn't you start feeling pretty special? Pretty good about yourself? Sure you would. So note verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. See, that's what happens when you're caught up into heaven. Nobody else has been to heaven. Pretty special to be called by the Lord to go to heaven. And it's just human nature. If you're caught up in heaven, you know what human nature is? It's to exalt yourself. So in order to keep him from exalting himself, what does God do? We'll get to that in a minute. Well, we'll, we'll go ahead and say it because we're there. God gives, him a, God gives him a new Cadillac Escalade. And God gives him a private jet. And God gives him an international ministry. And God gives him a full head of hair. And God gives him, and God gives him, and God. in order to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a what? A thorn in the flesh. See, this all goes back to what happened, he nails it, 14 years ago. So for 14 years, Paul has had a thorn in the flesh. Say, what was it? We don't know. But it was something that was so cumbersome that he asked the Lord three times to take it away. And God didn't take it away. You say, well, he should have remedied it. You know what that means? There's this teaching that there's rema faith, and that means you can speak something into existence. You can speak prosperity into existence. You can drive around and look at a house and you can speak it into existence that God will give you your house, that house. These guys teach this stuff. It's nonsense. You don't speak anything. What have you been given that you did not receive? You don't command anything. You're not God. You're a humble servant. What was given to Paul? A thorn in the flesh. God, take it away from me. Three times God said no, which leads me to my next point. Suffering brings great power. 
Great power. See, how in the world does suffering bring power? Um, now watch this. I'm still in uh, 2 Corinthians 12. Concerning this, I, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Have you ever asked God to take something away from you and he doesn't do it? You're still dealing with it? You're still dealing with it? You're still dealing with it? And you hear all these other people on TV and they've been healed. And I'm not saying God doesn't heal today. God heals when he so chooses to heal. God can heal whenever he wants to heal. But you don't command God to heal. But have you ever prayed and asked God to heal and he hasn't? Three times I asked the Lord that it might lead me. Watch this, verse 9. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Watch this. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell within me. Therefore, watch this, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, and difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. We hate as men being weak. We hate being weak. C.H. Spurgeon, a case can be made, he's the greatest preacher in the history of the Christian church since Paul. When he was a young man, at the age of 19... 10,000 people every Sunday were coming to hear him preach. He was 19 years old in London. There were so many people coming that they had to build a new church. And as they were building a new church, they had to find a place. And they found this great uh, auditorium in the Crystal Palace in London. And 10,000 people lined up to hear this 19-year-old young man preach the word of God. How many 19-year-olds do you know that preach to 10,000 people? And in order to keep him from exalting himself, God gave him a thorn in the flesh. And you know what happened? He gets up to preach before that vast, vast 10,000 people. And just as he's getting ready to open his Bible, somebody in the balcony yells out, fire. And somebody else down on the floor said the balcony is falling and in a nanosecond panic swept through that crowd and Spurgeon tried to get control but it, it, was, it was gone it was gone it was like it was like a wildfire and people started headed for the exits and before it was all over seven people were dead Greatest day of his life became the worst day of his life. And he was in such despair. He was in such despair, he determined he would never preach again. He would never get up in front of a crowd again. He couldn't bear it. He couldn't do it. But for the rest of his life, he preached a large crowd. For the rest of his life. And there, he, if you see the, the drawings of Spurgeon's tabernacle... He had an elevated pulpit, and I, if I'm not mistaken, there were 12 steps going up to the pulpit. And every Sunday, when Spurgeon, see, every Sunday, Spurgeon had to speak to thousands and thousands of people. And you know what his greatest fear was? Is that there would be a fire. By the way, there was no fire. It was all false. Those people didn't die from fire or smoke inhalation they died from panic but every Sunday for the rest of his life he spoke to thousands of people and many young preachers are thinking man I wish I had his ministry I wish I was Spurgeon I wish I was that no you don't because every Sunday 
He was so aware of his weakness. He didn't want to get up and preach to that crowd. And <clears throat> he'd walk those 12 steps. And every time he'd take a step, you know what he would say? I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. He wouldn't say it out loud. He'd say it to himself. That was the only way he could get up and preach. If the Holy Spirit didn't control that audience, things would get out of control. When I am weak, and God used him, and God preached through him, but he was a broken, weak man who was frightened to death of what might happen. That's how God works. Suffering brings great power. By the way, number eight. Uh, number seven. is simply this. Suffering equips you for ministry. I'll give you the, I'll give you the text. Is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. You know how you minister? It's when you're suffering, you receive comfort, then you pass that comfort on to someone else who's suffering. I was a young man, I used to think, I used to think if I went to seminary, I'd be equipped for ministry. So I went and I got a degree, then I went back and I got another degree. See, when I was young, I thought theological degrees equipped you for ministry. But you know what I found? And if you're going to teach, you need to know some things. But you know what I found out? Theological degrees don't equip you for ministry. You know what equips you for ministry? Suffering. Suffering equips you for ministry. If you've never suffered, you have nothing to say to anyone. You guys that have been through divorce, many of you are having great ministries. Many of you guys that have been through sexual addiction, you're having significant ministries. Out of your weakness, God's using you. Because you see, you've suffered. And number eight, is it number eight? I'm sure hoping it is. Here's number eight. Great suffering has brought great forgiveness. And we're about to celebrate it on this Sunday. Easter Sunday. You know, there are more people in church on Easter Sunday than any other day on the calendar in the United States of America. And we're going, to be, we're, going to be, we're going to be celebrating the resurrection. As Chuck said on Sunday, sometimes we're too fast to get to the resurrection. We forget about the suffering and we forget about the death. But he who knew no sin came and suffered and died for those of us who were full of sin. That's why, for, that's why we're forgiven. That's why we're going to heaven. And that's why one day we will never suffer again. And won't that be a great day? Let's stand and we'll pray. So, Father, those of us that are suffering, those of us that are hurting, give us perspective. We have a very short time on earth, a very, very short time. At times it seems like it's going to go on forever. We got maybe 70, 80 years, maybe a few more, maybe a few less. And then it's over. It's over and it's over forever. So help us to watch our attitudes and help us to watch our spirits in the midst of this suffering. Help us to submit to you. We need your help. We need your power. When we get weary, we need your strength. 
We don't suffer randomly. We don't suffer just to suffer. This is purposeful suffering. You're doing something. You're going to bring good out of it. In your way, in your time. Encourage us with these words we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.